moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Previously on Cascading Leadership. Uh, I got in some trouble as a child. And the trouble that I got in is that they would call and tell my mom that when hey, Jesse gets done with her tests, she starts helping all of the other students and giving them answers. Now, I was well-intentioned with that. I always found myself wanting to bring everybody along with me. If I was winning, I wanted everybody to win. What I didn't know is that was the beginning of who I was and how I was wired. And I stumbled upon, I went to college. My undergraduate degree was in business computer systems. Interesting enough, but eventually some kind of way I stumbled into educational administration and I found kind of the place that I was supposed to be moving into higher education. And it allowed me to really help people. And so I am a true person-centered type of individual that just wants to see people realize their full capacity. And a lot of that is due to my own challenges trying to make it in life. I'm first generation, a college student, the first in my family, in my immediate family to get my bachelor's, probably the third in my extended family to get a master's and the first, at least on my mother's side, to get her doctorate in all of my extended family. Historically, if you wanted to get access to information, you needed to go to your local library, physically go there and or you had to go to a college or a university or some sort of academic institution to unlock the door to information that would allow you to be successful. And so in that regard, libraries, schools served as the broker to success, if you will. They, you had to go through the library, through the institution to get to success. But the internet was born at some point. Now, when it was initially born, that alone did not change everything, but slowly over time, something began to happen. And what has caused us to rethink how people learn and how they get their information is the monetization of information. And so now, whether you're on YouTube, Instagram has a monetization program, Facebook, will now pay you for views and likes and subscribers. And the way that people get subscribers is they provide free information. Now, again, some of it is not good, but some of it is excellent. And so what has happened now is that there is no longer one broker to information. We have to be hyper-intentional about what do we include in this program to best ensure that we get people to the end goal that they desire. So that is one of the changes with the curriculum. In terms of design, there's a few things that this new environment has brought upon us. One is frictionless experiences, and I call it the Uber effect. For those of us that are old enough, when you previously had to take a taxi, you had to first find out what is the taxi cab's telephone number. Then you had to call the taxi cab, and then you had to get the dispatcher. Hopefully they were answering. 
then they had to tell you to hold on a second because they have to get in touch with somebody that is driving. That might be 10 minutes. And then they have to tell you that person is dropping somebody off on this side of town and they'll be to get you in an hour. We were okay with that when it was happening because that's all we knew. Now I can push a button as the plane is landing. A stranger will come and pick me up and I can be to my hotel in 20 minutes. When you are describing the agility model, How would you advise on or what are some successes that you've seen with regard to embedding applications? How does an organization embed that into their processes? I'll acknowledge that it's not easy. If you have a organization that has been in existence for some time, there are all kinds of policies, seizures. There are people who serve in roles that were designed for the non-frictionless experience. So if I change this, where does that leave you? It's a very difficult thing to do. I think the very first thing to do is to accept that it has to be done or else you will be left behind. I think, and I can't remember the name of the gentleman, but he wrote the brand flip and he talked about this disruption that was going to be coming before COVID. And he said, I give it about five years. He's almost spot on. I think it's at about the five-year mark where he talked about there's going to be a disruption and Organizations that didn't already start to change are going to have a difficult time. I think it's important to just start shifting the mindset and having the conversation around that we need to change and talking about what, if we don't change, what will happen. And now part three and the conclusion of our learning and development masterclass with Dr. Jesse Wade Ivory. What we decided to do was to create this online program that would be a self-paced program, 25 hours. And we worked backwards. We said, okay, what do they need to know how to do? Now, most training programs that came out at that time literally focused on just the mechanical parts of contact tracing. They need to pick up the phone. They need to read from a script. And then they need to say goodbye. Somebody will be in touch with you. We understood in order to actually be successful, it's not that simple. Most people were getting hung up on Most people were not answering the phone. You had the, also, as we were thinking about underserved and underrepresented groups who were very skeptical of someone calling and getting their information and them not wanting to provide it. How do you make sure that you understand that context when you're having that conversation? How do you put people at ease? How do you stay calm as they are yelling at you because everybody's frustrated? So we had to build out not just modules on whether the mechanics of making a call, it was much deeper than that. We had to build out a module on understanding the history of the healthcare system and public health and race and all of these different things. And we had to build this into this program. And so this was all, there was like four or five modules. People could move through at their own pace. They could study day or night. And once they finish, then they had the skills that they need. But going back to something that I mentioned earlier, part of our challenge too was it's one thing to learn it theoretically, it's another thing to do it. Now, it's hard to simulate contract tracing calls online. It's it's hard to do at scale. But what we did was we recorded calls and had students to record a response of how they would respond to certain calls, applying a certain kind of framework when there were difficulties. And so that's one way that we embedded application into the experience. So I don't want to get too specific on that, but it was important for us to not just have something where they could take a test 
and say, oh, this is what you do. It's A, it's B, it's C. But they were able to apply their learning as much as possible in that environment. So when we sent them to any public health department, they were able to be effective in making those calls. Now, what was also important with that is that we knew we were going to be serving people from across the nation. From what I could see, we were the first institution to put a comprehensive program out there in the nation. We launched in May and we ended up on all news outlets in the Chicagoland area. And that literally brought in calls from Florida to North Carolina. I'm pretty sure I got some calls from Texas. Every institution that was like, how did you put this together? And people were ready to be a part of the solution. But also a lot of people had lost their job and they wanted to take advantage of this training to be able to get into work. So we had to look at our enrollment process. And our traditional enrollment process was you fill out a paper or something, you fax it in, we take a look at it, we put you in the system and go from there. That works traditionally. But understanding that we were serving folks who might need to register at night, it needed to be very easy, very intuitive. We literally flipped and decided to use a program like Eventbrite for registration, very much out of, when I first said it, people were like, what are you talking about? I want to use Eventbrite because it's easy to get to, it's easy to get on your phone. You don't have to worry about Can somebody access it? They don't need a special login. They literally can register, pay for the training, and then be put into the training. And so we launched our Eventbrite registration. I was on the news. I remember this. I was on the news. We filled the first class within 20 minutes, and that was 75 people. I opened another section. We filled that within hours, 75 more people. I couldn't even keep up with the number of people that wanted to register. Within about a week and a half, we had 400 people registered for this program that found out. But if we had not offered this frictionless Eventbrite experience for registration, which was a paradigm shift from what we do, then we would have had a bottleneck. So we made sure that we had a frictionless experience on the front end. We made sure that it was an on-demand experience that they were going to go through, that they could access at any time. They did go through as a cohort, but you could finish on your own time, which was really convenient as well. That was a different design than I had ever did, but I just worked backwards. And I said, what are the needs of the people? What are the constraints of the people? And what do I need to have in place in terms of design, in terms of curriculum, and in terms of intake and enrollment experience? That's a wow all the way across the board because of many elements that were there. The first question that I have is that, how in the world did you manage this in EMEA? It was hard. I don't, I'll be honest. That and was the very- winner for the understatement of the year award goes to Dr. Jesse Wade Ivory. It was hard. No, because that is the first thing. When I think back to that time, it was, I'll be honest, I was the most stressed I've ever been trying to figure that out, but I just had to not budge. And I had to paint the picture to our leadership that there's no way we can do what we said we're going to do because we pre-sold it a little bit because we were on the news before everything was all the I's were dotted, all the T's were crossed. And I'm like, if we're going to get all these folks, I'm going to need us to change. That would have never happened, I don't think, prior. But I think I painted the picture of we cannot have on our hands a situation where people are upset because they can't get through our intake process or do what they need to do. And I showed how 
the current process, which was adequate for what we were traditionally doing, would not be adequate for the current situation. And I'll tell you, we ended up with about 4,000 on the wait list. So we still had people that were upset because they didn't get in before the other 500. But if we had not had these systems in place, and I think also because I was very connected in the institution and there were people that trusted that I could give good advice on what we needed to do, they went with what I had to say and it worked out for us. But even for me, I'm making the recommendation but never having done it that way, I was like, I hope this works. But I just knew it needed to be easy. So Jesse, as is true of your nature, you're being extremely humble about what you actually pulled off. So we're talking about a complete transformation. So when I think about transformations as people process technology in education, which is a chronically slow environment, and you were able to pull that off in two, two months, happened in March and you were able to April, May, two months, right? So the scope and scale of that when people listening are thinking about how do I execute change in a rapid format in any environment, you have to be dispassionate about your babies and be willing to throw them out and reevaluate everything. Do we have the right people in the right seat? Do we have the right tech stack to execute this? What's our current process and what are the breakage points? And let's throw everything out, keep the stuff that is working fine, but be willing to get rid of all of it and let's do it quickly. And what makes this really amazing, and I'm lapsing into your hype guy in this conversation, is you're able to do it in an environment that is completely resistant to change. If there is a definition of an environment that is perfectly happy with, that's how we've always done it, and that's how we're going to continue to do it, you're able to pull that off in this environment and turn it around in two months. So that's freaking amazing. I want to say that stuff out loud because you're, you're making it sound like, oh, it's no big deal. And I feel like a little bit of it, I'm reflecting because I feel like we've been on our heels ever since that happened. Technically, we're not out of the pandemic. We are still feeling the effect of that in higher ed as a whole. And certainly to your point, and I want to make sure I make a point of clarification, though, higher ed is a very complex organization that has been in existence for a very long time. And so even when you have the mind and the will to change, it's very hard to do. And it's not just resistance. And it like it's easy to do and we just don't want to. It's part of it is like, how do we unentangle the way we've created ourselves to be able to do things a lot different than we've done it for the last 100, 200, 300 years when we're, this is the organization that we are and it requires a blowing up of who we've been. That's not easy to do. But I think part of it for me also, it's important. I've always pushed the envelope. I've been a paradigm shifter I've always, the way I'm thinking is not too far outside of how I've always thought. So even though I had never did that kind of design before, people would expect that from me, is what I'll say. And so when I came with it, it wasn't like, what is Jesse talking about? It was, this is something that Jesse would come up with. And I had some success in the past of doing things that were outside of the norm. And so I think it's important that I didn't start trying to be innovative because of the pandemic, I started it prior. And so I was always saying, how do we design from, I don't know if I knew to do this, it just happened, but how do we begin with the end in mind and design backwards? And then how do we think about the particular individual or individuals that we are serving and designing experience for them? I've had the luxury of serving older adults, youth, underserved communities. I've served a very white Jewish communities. Every diverse group you can think of, I've designed a program for. 
And I've had to, Jim, something you're saying, I like to call it grieving however I did something in the past. I've had to grieve it quick, get over it, and redesign the experience for that group and for that context and for that time. And so I've always done that. So when I came with, I want to do something different and the times calls for it, there was, but I won't say that everybody was like, yay. It was like, I don't have a better solution. So let's go with what she's saying. And in the past, she hasn't necessarily led us astray when she's done things. So I I think it helps that I was not new to the institution and that they trusted based on things I've done before that this likely was going to work. If not, I guess I'd have been in trouble. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Caroline Wong, but she is the CEO of Essence Magazine. And when she was at Target, she talked about this idea and it's a slight deviation, but it just, this story struck me when you were talking about this because she was talking about your brand and she was talking to a diverse population of incoming employees into the Target program. I think it's their development developmental program for fresh college graduates. And she talked about like people wanting to come in and immediately start banging the drum on diversity, equity, and inclusion or whatever it was that was passionate to them without Mm -hmm. first proving that you are good at what you do. And that's your story struck me because I think that you, the, one of the things it sounds like is that you had the brand behind you to say, Hey, I've done this in the past. I have a reputation for being able to accomplish X, Y, Z. It's something that I wanted to tease out for people to hear. Cause that was a very important thing that you talked about is that mm-hmm. if it's that important to you, you will be that intentional around building your brand, building the acumen to be able to execute on what it is that you say you can do. And then it increases the likelihood that people will say when something like this occurs, yeah, I think Jesse could do that. I think that what she's saying is sound. And there is the, also the, one of the other, my other favorite quotes is from Warren Buffett, who says, never waste a good crisis. And you had this opportunity, right, where the crisis occurred and you were able to respond and your team was able to respond. And I think that's also an important element. Also call out to be ye ready. So it's about all of these different elements. Lastly, the one that I think that's also important, you framed it as painting the picture. But I would all I always say it's telling the story, which is really the same thing to execute and also deliver the message. Because if you're great at what you do, but you can't articulate what that is in a way that is circling back, that is meaningful to the person that needs the solution, then it really doesn't it really doesn't do us any good per se. With all that you've talked about in it, and there's been a lot of great nuggets of information that you've dropped, what would you say would be the two or three key takeaways that you would want? the audience to leave with today? The first for sure is remain curious about who you're serving and the context that you're in. I would I had the pleasure of, can't remember the young lady's name, but I went to a presentation mm-hmm. about three or four years ago. And they said one of the top skills that you're going to need in 2020 was the ability to be curious, to be curious about what is going on. It will leave you open. If you're curious, you'll remain open to whatever solution I have now, there could be a better way. And I'm okay with letting it go because I'm curious about what else is out there. Make sure you adopt this acceptance of curiosity and looking into things and talking to people and understanding what's happening. Because here's the deal, it's not always obvious. You can actually have a very good process that could be better, but because it's good, you're blind to changing it. And then it could become terrible when something like COVID happens. But because you were like, well, it was good and I didn't need to change, you were not ready when you had to change. So I think it's important to be always talking to people, always understanding what's happening around you 
and saying to yourself, okay, what implications does this have on what I'm designing, what I'm doing, how I'm offering it, what else is needed, and to govern yourself accordingly. Also, another thing that I do, and I'll say this specifically for educators, but this can apply anywhere. I believe that we can often, when we're in our own industry, we can suffer from groupthink to where we're all saying the same thing. I think there are clues to innovation and creativity and learning and development and design often outside of your industry. I look at other industries for how they do development. I look at other industries for how they market. And I say, how does that apply to what we are doing, even if it's entirely different than how we've traditionally done things? And that will open your mind to some ways of doing. So I think it's important. I didn't really mention that as I was talking through my process, but I think a lot of how I've come up with these different ways of designing things is that I've always been curious and I've always looked outside of higher education for additional clues on what some on how something can be. That's what allowed me to do Eventbrite. I wouldn't have thought of Eventbrite. That's not a higher education registration system. It's not. But if I don't look outside myself and say, how does big events that have 10,000 people coming through the door get people through the door quickly. Oh, I went to an event. They used Eventbrite. How can I use that in what I'm doing, even though it's not a registration system? But if I only had a looked at, well, what higher education registration systems are out there to be able to do this, then I might have created a bottleneck for what it is that we needed to do very quickly. So make sure that you're staying curious. Make sure that you're looking outside yourself. And then the third thing is keep people at the center of what you're doing and their transformation. Don't ever let that get lost. And also make sure that whatever their problem is, whatever they're looking to do, you're keeping that at the center, not whatever it is that you are thinking that they need. As I mentioned earlier on in the interview, people have choices now. And so they don't have to just take what it is that you're offering. They want to know, do you have the solution to my major problem? If you don't have it, I'm going over here. Do you have the solution to my major problem? So we have to make sure that not only are we selling that we have the solution. So that too, a lot of people are good at selling that we're here to change you, but then you get in there and it doesn't actually change you because it's all marketing. The actual experience and the outcome of what you get is all there too. But you got to make sure that you're solving their problem. And I'm going to tell you just from my experience, and offering different training programs. I have CDL programs, a lot of different things. I no longer have to sell those programs. They sell themselves. Why? Because I've put enough people through those programs and I've designed something that they tell people or people see them doing better and realizing success. And then they call and go, my cousin, my friend, my sister, my brother went through your program and now they're making all this money. How do we do it? I barely sell. But in the beginning, I had to sell. I had to go out there and tell people what we were doing and I had to get those few wins, but I had to make sure that I really solved their problem, which was to get into work, which was to make sure that they made the money that they need to change their lives, be able to feed their families. Once I did that, the program now sells itself. I don't need to sell it. So make sure you approach. Those are the three things that I was saying. Jesse, this is one of those shows where I'm like, we're supposed to stop right now. And everything that you just said, we could easily go for another hour. I just naturally curious, looking outside and looking at different industries and keeping people at the center of what it is. 
that you're doing in problem solving are three key elements. And I think in some instances, we've touched on some of these with our past guests. You've handled it in such a unique way. I love the idea of Eventbrite. That is just absolutely brilliant. And I hope that this is a this is just that your overall story and the example that you provided with uh, with Eventbrite and just the other three key takeaways are something that our listeners will really learn from. Thank you so much. The last thing that we have to ask and share with you is for you to share with us, where can our listeners find you? So I would say the best way to connect with me is to find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Jesse, I think it's Dr. Jesse Wade Ivory. If you just go on LinkedIn, search, add me, connect, then you'll find out about all that I'm doing, what I'm going to be doing in the future. I got some things coming up. Just find me on LinkedIn. Love to connect with you and yeah, be good conversation. Thank you so much. And yes, you can also find us on other platforms, including LinkedIn, of course, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook to get the latest information on the drops and upcoming episodes. We look forward to you all listening and continuing to follow Cascading Leadership, the show. And with that, thank you and have a good night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.